Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So last episode, we were talking about Gerber and Green, political statisticians. Yeah, you could say that. We get to hear about Don Green's fate and some of the ensuing fallout from a particular thing that happened in this episode. Now, if you haven't listened to our previous episode, this is part two in a two-part series. So you may want to go back and listen to that one first. You are listening to part two of a two-part series of linear digressions. Okay, so last episode, Gerber and Green. Gerber and Green, the two titans of sort of political science, like quantitative political science, doing experiments on people to try to understand how to get them to vote or change their minds about what they're going to vote for, that sort of thing. And uh, so what, what, is this, what is this thing of which you were speaking? Right. What was the... So what happened? The bad thing happened. So... That happened. Last year, in 2014, uh, Green and a, a grad student at UCLA named Michael LaCour did a study. And what they were studying was how you can change people's minds on certain types of controversial topics. So in particular, they looked at gay marriage and abortion. And what they found was a very interesting result, which is that if you specifically send canvassers to people's doors and you have the canvasser speak to a person who, let's say, was against gay marriage, uh, and you send a gay person to talk to them. And sort of, you know, they have a nice conversation about their beliefs, and the gay person talks to them a little bit about how gay marriage influences them personally. That The person that you go to to campaign to in that way will change their mind. Interesting. Okay, so if you have a gay person come to someone who's against gay marriage, for example, and they chat with them, the person change, is more likely to change their mind. Right. I remember hearing about this, and I thought, hmm, that kind of makes sense. But at the same time, like, it's... That that's that's powerful. To know that is very powerful. Right, and and I should say that this was a this was a result that really rocked the field of political science because it's very difficult actually to get people to change their minds about things. Mm-hmm. Humans are pretty stubborn, and so this study was this study was pretty remarkable for a few reasons. The first one was that yeah, it was just so successful. They were able to to demonstrate, well, demonstrate in kind of scare oh, quotes. You put that in air quotes. There. Yeah. Okay. Well. Well. Okay. So. We'll see. We'll hear about what happens, but right. So, but what the what the study that they published, what that what that said was that you're able to change people's mind in, with using this particular campaign method, which with a much higher effectiveness than you would with just sort of sending them a flyer or a phone call, sort of the regular things. So, a lot of people looked at this, were like, "Oh, well, this is this is very powerful. This, this is a way is we should be ca- campaigning." Mm-hmm. Another thing I want to add about this study is these sorts of studies are, you know, the way that this study methodology was set up was you have to sample the population. You ask a bunch of people, what's your feelings on gay marriage? Then you send someone to talk to them. Then you study them three months later, six months later, nine months later. And so it's actually really difficult to get people to, like, answer surveys again and again. And so one of the things that was interesting about this study was it had a very high response rate. Typically for studies like this, they have response rates of something like 1%. So um, like out of 100 people, you say, hey, will you be part of my survey? Most people are like, eh, no. If they say anything to you at all, they'll probably just if, ignore it. <laughs> they just hang up the phone or you close the door in your face. Right. So you typically get something like a 1% response rate. And this study, part of the reason that it was so powerful was they had a very high response rate. I forget what it was off the top of my head. It was like 10% or something, which is That's crazy high. That's an order high. of magnitude. That's high. Crazy high. Um, but 
very interesting result. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was certainly kind of the talk of the town for most of 2014. It, it made it onto the front page of the New York Times, and they did a whole episode or half episode on it on This American Life. Um, in fact, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you you probably listen to a lot of podcasts. And if you listen to This American Life, you should go back and revisit that episode. It was mm-hmm. something about the um, how rare it is for people to change their minds. And they were talking about this specific study. Mm-hmm. It came out in the last three weeks or so that as near as anyone could tell, the data for this study was just straight up faked. Um, so the Talk of the Town study for 20, 2014 Faked. Far as we can tell. So By the I, way, that was three weeks ago as of early June, which it currently is early June right yeah, now. Yeah, so I think us. I think the the paper sort of the white paper explaining how why they think this was faked, I think that came out like May nineteenth or something. So yeah, pretty recently. So can we can we dig into this and I mean first first of all it'd be interesting to talk about how we know it was faked, right? Yes. So that's one. And we've actually talked about this before. It was just a couple episodes ago. It was an episode called Falsifying Data. And we talked about a whole bunch of interesting ways that you can kind of tell. And one is looking for patterns that shouldn't exist in data. And uh, there was another way where, like, if your distribution looks strange, if it doesn't have enough noise in it or it has some strange noise in it, yeah. that's another way that you can detect it. So how how did they figure out that this data was false? Uh, well, so first of all, I should say, so the first thing is that the process of kind of investigating this is still ongoing. Okay. So it will be very interesting to see how this sort of plays out in the final analysis. And, and as we're sort of talking about it right now, it's with all the evidence that we have available. But yeah. with that caveat in place. So you said that one of the giveaways for fraudulent data is that the noise in the data looks wrong. Mm-hmm. So we'll start sort of at the beginning. There was a, a a couple of grad students at Berkeley, David Brockman and Josh Calla, and they work in this same field as this study was done, and they were interested in replicating it. So going out and doing the same study again and seeing if they could re- achieve the same result. And that's one of the things about studies is that you should put you should be putting all of your methodologies in the in the paper in the study, so that way anyone can go out and reproduce this and get similar results. That's right. And something we mentioned was that these types of studies are characterized by very low response rates to the yeah, surveys, like one percent or something. Right. And so these guys were getting something like ten percent. Brockman and Calla weren't able to reproduce that, and they're like, "Hmm, that's." weird. We can't seem to replicate this using the methodologies that are described in the paper. Mm-hmm. So they started investigating and they they figured out sort of the survey firm that the researchers worked with. And they called up the survey firm and they said, hey, we kind of want to do this thing like you did with Green and LaCour. Can you tell us about that? That seems like a good first step. Right. And the survey company said, we don't, we can't do that. And they said, that's very funny because we heard that there was this Here's the name of this person that wanted, yeah yeah that that we heard worked with you on this project. They said that person's never worked here. Wow! And they're like, oh, that's no. a, that's very weird. That's a that's a bad sign. <laughs> so this was their first inkling. We think that something might have been amiss. Okay. So then what they did was they really dug into the distributions of the data themselves, and one of the things that was interesting about this data was I said you have people that you're sampling repeatedly. And they were sampling them in a particular way that's pretty well studied in political science. They were using what's called a thermometer reading. And what this means is I walk up to you and I say, like, on a scale of 1 to 100, how do you feel about gay marriage? And you say some number. Yeah, we'll say 78. 78. 
And so here's here's one example of what typically happens with thermometer scores. These are well studied in political science. Sure. One of the problems with this particular way of studying things is that I might come back and ask you the same question tomorrow, and you might say like 40. People mm. tend to be really noisy. And they were finding that from sort of sampling to sampling, people were extremely consistent in the results they were giving. Interesting. Which was very so weird. So day to day, I might be 78, 77, 77, 79. Yeah, the correlations were way tighter than you typically get people, with this kind of data. Yeah, so the people he sampled had very consistent days. They they didn't have bad days. Right, right. The, I mean, like we would say sort of in, in the previous episode, we talked about how there was some uh, fraud in another context in election polling. The noise looks wrong, right? That you expect people yeah. to be a little bit yeah. noisy. And, and so that was something that jumped out to uh, sort of our investigators when they started looking at this was the extremely high degree of correlation between the responses that you get in the various waves. Okay, so that seems like another warning sign. Yes. And so then what they did was they started comparing the waves to each other, and in particular to a reference distribution. There was this uh, data set that someone else had collected previously. It's called CCAP. And this was used sort of at the beginning of the study to say, like, to demonstrate that the data that they were sampling was kind of fairly typical for these, you know, they weren't sampling any kind of like weird um, subpopulation that might have, that might be giving them different results than if you were trying to do this in general. So they they did what's called a Kolmogorov-Smirnov test. (laughs) We call it a chaos test. (laughs) Is it really Smirnov? Yeah, Kolmogorov-Smirnov test. Is not not the same Smirnov as in Smirnov ice. I can't, I can't. Uh, I, I can't prove that it's not the same Smirnoff, Ben. <laughs> so you take shots every time you take this test. I wish. Okay. So KS test? So a KS test, yeah. So the idea behind a, a KS test is imagine you have two different uh, data sets. Okay. And you're trying to understand if they're basically the same data set, but just sort of smeared out by a little bit of noise. Mm, okay. And so let me think, what's, what's an example of this? Let's suppose I sampled everyone in Udacity and I asked them their height. Okay. I come up with some distribution of heights. Then I take all of those heights and I randomly add or subtract two inches. Mm. So these will be the same. It's the same underlying data set, but just kind of wiggled around a little bit. Right. So you look at that data set and it seems like a different data set, but KS test would give you a way of identifying it as the same data set, just with a little bit of extra noise on top of it? Yeah, so a KS test is supposed to tell you, yeah, if the shapes of the distributions are generally the same. And in in the same way that then, if I compared this to a data set of days of rain that we've had, right, that's going to be a very different looking distribution than the distribution of heights. Mm -hmm. And so a KS test would say like, okay, these two height related distributions, those look like fundamentally the same thing. Rain looks like it's following a completely different pattern. Okay, so it's a it's a metric of similarity between data sets. Exactly. In, in shape of data sets. Exactly. And so what they did was they used the KS test and they compared the data that was supposedly collected by these researchers and they compared it to the CCAP data. And they said, oh, snap, this is fundamentally, near as we can tell, the same data. Whoa, okay. So, so the idea being that someone who was involved in doing the study took the CCAP data, added a little bit of random noise, called it a different data set, yeah. and used that as their false data. Yeah. Ooh. it's You know, that's amazing that you can detect that, too, that there, there are 
ways that you can statistically analyze data sets to see if they're the same plus or minus some random noise. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, this is this is exactly what the KS test is for. I Just as a digression, um, the KS test was something that I first encountered a few years ago. We used it in physics because you have um, these various types of physics processes that you're trying to model with your Monte Carlo, your sort of fake data that you're simulating for yourself. And so then you compare the shapes that you get in the Monte Carlo to the shapes that you get in the data. And so if you're doing something wrong in your simulations, it should show up in your KS test telling mm. you that there's a disagreement here. And so they ran the KS test through the various waves and found just dead on agreement. And in the places where they didn't find agreement, they actually found very compelling kind of algorithmic ways that you could get the results that they got. So one example is that on this thermometer data. Let's suppose that you, I asked you what your opinion was on gay marriage and you said five on a scale of one to a hundred. Okay. And then I take that result and I smear it out by 10. And then I say, that's your, your answer for the next round. So sometimes that smearing will put you at 15, but sometimes it'll also put you at negative five and negative, negative five, five is doesn't work. Exactly. So then if it's at negative five, then you'll just be put in like the zero bin oh, or something like that. So the zero bin will have more. So you have these overflow and underflow effects that you get and those act differently based on whether you have people who are actually answering zero or a hundred or whether you have somebody who's answering something like 95 and then you arbitrarily add on 10 and then you have to put them in the overflow bin. So if, like I were, if I were gonna go falsify data, I wouldn't try and actually falsify data from nothing. I would take something and then try and modify it if I wanted to do so. Well, right? it's certainly easier that way. It's so yeah. much easier that way <laughs> because then you get what ideally would be compelling looking data. I mean, apparently it was compelling enough because it stuck around and was kind of accepted and got wide press coverage oh, for six months or so, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but then in, like we said, in the last few weeks, um, these researchers at, at Berkeley published sort of a white paper saying that not only can we demonstrate that the data in this study looks kind of weird, but we think we can demonstrate how it was derived. I mean, wow. that's a very compelling picture to paint. Yeah. So anyway, um, the fallout from this has been basically that there's a, um, like I said, there's still kind of ongoing investigations into exactly what happened and who's responsible for what. But I think it's a it's an interesting thing to think about a little bit. Um, first question is, and I'm curious your opinion on this, is whether you would consider this entire ordeal as an example of the scientific process failing because this was published in the first place or whether you would consider it a success that it only spent, you know, six months on the market before somebody figured out that there was a problem. That's actually, that's a very fascinating question because the whole point of the scientific process is to eliminate human biases, right? So rather than humans evaluate, say, the, the efficacy of a medicine as opposed to placebo, or the efficacy of different kinds of canvassing styles on election results. We use statistics, mm -hmm. and we use the scientific methodologies that we have in place to try and eliminate those human biases. So this is an example of, I, I, don't, know how, I don't know what to call it. It seems to me like the data was pretty clearly intentionally falsified. I can't I can't spin it any other way, at least given what I currently know. So does does that count as a human bias or does that count as the scientific process not effectively compensating for humans deciding to sabotage it? Well, I think it's 
So me as a scientist, right? I always, if someone walks up to me with a result and they say like, oh, this was, I did this study. Here's what I found. I might question their methods. I might question the assumptions that they've made. I might question the way they calculate their errors. But I can't think of a time that I've, it's ever crossed my mind, maybe this person is just lying to me about the mm. origins of their data. And I think in physics, this is a little bit different because we, we share data a lot more in physics than we do in political science sometimes. And so it's very easy for someone, if they wanted to, to go get the data that I had in the first place and try to reproduce my result. So it's easier to be transparent, maybe in physics, than perhaps political science. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we all start from fundamentally the same data set in a way in physics that that you don't in political science. Yeah, and I think it would be very difficult for me as a scientist to try to be critical of every result that came across my desk if I thought that if I thought someone was trying to defraud me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that our processes to eliminate biases can only go so far because we're uh, we're effectively the ones implementing them, right? So if you go out and you do you perform a study, and let's say you don't even falsify data, but you do take knowingly take shortcuts mm-hmm. and decide not to employ the sci- the standard scientific methodologies, maybe because it's too costly or just a pain in the butt or something. Mm-hmm. To me, that's not a failing of the scientific process. That's a failing of the person who is choosing not to implement the scientific process. When it comes to someone falsifying data knowingly, it's the same thing. I'm inclined to agree, actually. And I think it's a success of the science. I think that checking each other's results is part of the scientific process and trying to reproduce. And so the fact that that was what sort of brought this to everyone's attention. Yeah, that's what happened. So so in that sense, for that part of the story, that's a, a success of the scientific process. But it, it does it does raise kind of an interesting and somewhat troubling question of um, we know that we can't trust ourselves as logic machines, and that's why we have the scientific process. But if we can't trust that we're working together in good faith with one another, I don't know, it, it seems like that's a very dark tunnel to go down. You know? Yeah, and one of the other things I should add, this this wasn't quite as clear in our discussion as I should have made it is that as far as anyone can tell, I mean, this was a study that was done by, like I said, this graduate student, Mike LaCour, and most of the allegations seem to be about what he did. Mm. Don Green was the other author on this paper, this guy who's, you know, super senior professor Renowned, in this field. Yeah. And as far as anyone can tell, I mean, as soon as this came out, that this might have happened, Don Green was like, oh, that is a problem. Retract the paper. I, so he was on it right he, away. He was very, um, very quick to say like, oh, if there's a problem, then then I'm going to back off of this. And on the one hand, you know, you have to admire that, that he's willing to say like immediately that, okay, there's a problem and we need to be honest about that. On the other hand, like yeah. his name was on the paper and, and how much responsibility should he take for keeping tabs on what his, his co-author is doing? And, and this starts to become a little bit of a rabbit hole of exactly what did he know and what should he have known and what are the customs in this field and mm-hmm, all these sorts mm-hmm. of things. But it's tricky to know how much he should be held responsible for this as well. I mean, it'll definitely have a negative impact on how people respect him and his work, or at least how they trust initially his work. Yeah, I think a lot of people are are rethinking the way that in general, there's kind of a custom sometimes that you have a a senior professor who might be on a paper to help it get published. It gives it a little bit of name recognition. 
sometimes the senior person doesn't do as much work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, should they really be listed as an author if they if they don't stand behind the work? Now, again, I think he was very uh, forthcoming as soon as there seemed to be a problem and, and you know, tried to address that in a, in a very straightforward way. But, you know... He it, should have been the one to catch the problem. Ideally. I yeah, mean, probably. I mean, he's a co-author on the paper. <laughs> right. Um, so I think that's an interesting question as well, is is whether he lived up to his his responsibility here. And I think you could make a very good argument either way. But that's one of the mm. reasons that this is so interesting, right? Is that we don't usually we don't usually think about these things as scientists. We tend to trust the process. And so when it becomes apparent that there there can be bugs in the process that someone can take advantage of, you know, we have to stop and think about whether that's really the best way to be doing things. Linear Digressions is a podcast about data science and machine learning, produced and recorded in the studios of Udacity a company dedicated to education. We've got some awesome courses made by people like Katie and me in data science and other tech fields. We should also remind you that all views expressed during this program were those of the speakers and not of Udacity. This is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to lineardigressions.com. And if you don't mind, leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. Thank you for being here. And we'll see you next time.